Based on real events, I'm your host, EJ Gullet, and I think you probably know who's with me, but if you don't, his name is Jay. He's kind My of name cool. is Jeff. My name's Yeah. My name is Jeff. My name's Yeah. Uh, and we are in for another round of Based on Real Events, which is the podcast that talks about movies and the real events that they were inspired by. So welcome. Yes, with the acronym BOR. Boar. Aim to excite you. Yeah, you know what? I'm just gonna go ahead and fucking trademark that right now. Boar. Yep. Wait, file it. Here? File it, buddy. File it. <laughs> so we are now here for our two part, your second part, second half, grand finale. Ooh, baby. Ford versus Ferrari. Ford versus Ferrari. Anyway. We are going to get into a quick recap, but we want to stick to the traditional format of this show. So, Mr. Edward Jordan. Hello. See, that's a long hand for EJ. Pay attention, yeah. guys. What are you watching right now, bud? Ooh. Uh, well, still The Sopranos. Still haven't watched an episode since the last time we talked, though. Uh, still Star Wars Rebels. Um, I also watched another James Bangold great this week. Uh I watched Logan, which I love so, so much. Uh, and I have been doing a MCU, that's Marvel Cinematic Universe for all you noobs out there, rewatch right now. So I'm not kidding. I've started with Captain America. I'm doing the... You're going uh, in chronological order, baby. Chronological order, baby. Captain America, the first Avenger. But we are chugging through right now. And I'm, I think actually right now... This weekend, we'll be watching Spider-Man Homecoming. So, you know, we just finished Captain America Civil War uh, into Homecoming, into Black Panther, uh, and we're getting close to uh, the end game, baby. So, Jay, you've watched them, right? Please tell me you have. Yeah, not in chronological order. I'm not a fucking nerd, but yeah, I've watched them all before. Yeah, well, you should. I, I promise you it's worth it. Yep, yep, yep. And eh, whatever, whatever. What are you watching? Uh, what am I? That's such a good question. I am watching what we do in the shadows. I'm onto the TV show now, so a few episodes. Do you love it? That. We're laughing. Um, different, <laughs> but uh, we're laughing. We're laughing a pretty good amount, so it's still uh, still good. Uh, still watching a little bit of Room 104, that weird kind of anthropology based on one room. Uh, recorded an episode because it sounded cool. Turned out to be very cool because Mark Duplass was one of the main characters. He's also uh, the producer of the show. He was also in um, Creep, which we did an episode on as well. Uh, just did you ever watch Creep too? I didn't watch it. Watch, we have not yet, but we will probably do an episode on that when we both get around to that. Um, and still been banging out the MLS's back tournament because I have to pay attention to soccer. Uh, besides that, uh, I'm going to go ahead and throw in a little Pineapple Express because I was deep in that a couple days ago, but Chloe made me turn it off. Said it Why? With Quinn in the room. Oh, well, <laughs> honestly, understandable. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> but um, So anyway, so back to why we're all here. 
Um, because you did such a great job on this first half research, go ahead and just give a brief, catch everybody up to where we are and where we left off, and then I will take it over for the home stretch. Sure. Let me let me uh, collect my ADD brain here and um, wrap it back up for you guys real quick in less than 30 seconds. Maybe 35, maybe 40, I don't know. Maybe 28, we'll see. Basically... What happened last time on the episode was we covered 1963 to right up to the 1965, excuse me, 1966 season, uh, which is one of the biggest parts of the entire film. But you are seeing from the last episode here, we talked about uh, Ford and its uh, huge historic deal that it tried to get with Ferrari to buy out Ferrari. Enzo Ferrari's epic no to them with a $50 million buyout on the table for him. He said no. Uh, And then him turning right around and partnering with Fiat to do that. Now Enzo said no because of uh, his, he would lose all uh, ownership of the racing, which is what his heart and soul was into. So that was a big no for him Uh, into Henry Ford and his uh, extreme vengeance for being called fat, basically, uh, and him uh, uh, wanting to beat Ferrari in the Le Mans so he would build the fastest race car on the planet. So that's where we bring in Carroll Shelby. Carroll Shelby tries to go ahead and uh, build the GT40 to beat them. They build the GT40 successfully. It's got a lot of speed to it, but it's not enough to beat them in both the 64 and 65 seasons. So we enter into the 66 season where we meet uh, Mr. Carroll Shelby and also Mr. Ken Miles now. Now, Ken Miles, who has been working with them for quite some time, uh, he's bringing him up and becoming a little bit more prominent because he's bring, being brought on as the driver now. So, Jay, bring us into the 1966 season. All right. So, yeah, so Ken Miles brought in in 1963 as the chief test driver for the uh the gt40 now uh he was again the the chief test driver working on really improving the car and and getting it to where it needs to be to take down ferrari and le mans so basically all the work we covered in the last episode was um you know basically like the the bones of the of the of the operation getting the the gt40 uh starting to spec it out and get it to where they need to be so now we're getting into the 1966 season, and this is where the really notable changes to uh, the GT40 comes into play. But it comes from really a much higher level approach, and then and then down throughout the organization. One of the first changes made to the Ford racing season of 1966 was the creation of the Le Mans, sorry, Le Mans on the way. Le Mans. Le Mans committee. Uh, the creation of the Le Mans committee in 1966, which brought together the heads of a number of Ford divisions, including uh, the uh, engine and foundry, general parts, and also expanded the role of the Dearborn Motorsports and styling and engineering teams. Uh, this allowed them to streamline the program, really cutting the red tape that had previously hindered the program and really just uh, allow all focuses to be on uh, vast and continuous and quick improvements to the actual uh, vehicles themselves. So Ford Motor Company then bought its own NASCAR team, Holman and Moody, in addition to Shelby American. 
the committee met monthly with John Cowley being placed in charge of the operations of the GT program and Homer Perry named day-to-day liaison to Shelby American and Holman and Moody. With the team resources and strategy in place for the Le Mans committee, the perfect partnership of Ford Engineering and the racing specialists of Shelby, Holman, and Moody teamed up to fully design and develop the 427 GT40. Now, Phil Hill and Ken Miles continued to race and modify the car by mid-September. They made enough changes to the body suspension, the fuel system, and brakes that the new model, now called the Mark II, was ready for testing at the Dearborn Wind Tunnel. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, there's still to this day, because I, I found people who worked there in the past uh, at the Dearborn Proving Grounds. This is, is basically uh, a racetrack with facilities around it to tweak and, and, and test cars, basically. This is used for even the most basic civilian cars that you would find out there to high-end racing cars, right? So one of these changes include using a, a heavier gauge metal, which increased the weight of the vehicle, which therefore increased the weight and stress on the brakes. Ken Miles continued testing a shorter nose body style, which added eight miles per hour to the Mark II. Ooh. But, yeah, there we go. It's all spin improvements right there. All that matters, though, really, when you're when you're racing. Even with the increased weight and stress on the brakes and gearbox, the team felt they had developed a car fast enough to take down Enzo Ferrari and win the Le Mans. Okay. Mm-hmm. But first up, before we get to the Le Mans, we have two races we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about, talk about the uh, 24 Hours of Daytona and the 12 Hours of Sebring. These are the two races prior, right? So um, both of these featured miles behind the wheel. Now, we will get into the, what the movie got wrong and what the movie got right. But I'll tell you right now, one of the things in the movie is shows Ken not racing, but listening on the radio. In fact, he was there racing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first race of the year was in February at Daytona, which was actually increased from 12 hours to 24 hours. Uh, now, Ford fielded five racing teams, three under Shelby American and two under Holman and Moody, the NASCAR teams, uh, which oddly enough featured an experimental automatic transmission, which you don't really see too much in today's races. Uh, back in the day, manual was the way to go. You had more control over the vehicle. Uh, automatic transmissions were not nearly what they are today. And nowadays, uh, I think most racing cars are featuring actually automatic transmissions because they basically have made the timing uh, and shifting in, in immaculate process. So uh, it's notable that for people just have it easier today, don't they? Now, people just have it easier today, don't they? Dude? It's easier. Technology. Works. Yep. It's yeah. unfair. Uh, so Ken Miles and the Lloyd Ruby team, uh, keep in mind the drivers take shifts since it's a 24 hour race. So Ken Miles, Lloyd Ruby switching drivers, uh, led from the beginning and there were clear cut winners with Ford winning the first three places. Really wasn't much of a competition. Uh, Ken Miles ends up winning this race and next on the docket is the endurance race at Sebring. So the Le Mans committee held discussions about whether the more powerful Mark II's were better than the lighter 289 GT40s due to the course requiring more agility and maneuverability. So they made a selection of two 289 GT40s and entered them uh, both under the Shelby American, Holman and Moody and Allen Mann racing banners. <clears throat> now, Ferrari did enter one of his factory cars in this race. They entered one of the 330 P3 cars, which was driven by the great Mike Parks. Um, as the race carried through the night, it became apparent that the two lighter 289 GT40s did not possess the top line speed to keep up. Ken Miles was actually driving one of the Mark IIs along with fellow racing teammate 
teammate Dan, Dan Gurney, uh, both of which were performing well. But again, it's notable that while Ken Miles was given uh, permission for the quicker lap time in Daytona, during a team meeting prior to the race at Sebring, Dan Gurney had been given the faster lap time this race with Ken Miles to run two seconds slower. The Ferrari team's 330P3's transmission began to give out in the seventh hour of the race and was eventually forced to retire from the race. So it gave out in the seventh of the 12th hour. Again, these are endurance races. This isn't about who can go, you know, A to B fastest. This is about who can last 12 hours, 24 hours. It's a lot of strain on a vehicle. Do you know how many cars they were allowed to have? Like, I can imagine that it's not just one GT40 that they're having in this race. I imagine that there's multiple, right? Oh, they 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 uh, two of the 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 two eighty nines, and they I think three of the Mark Twos. Yeah, so the, I mean they're entering Jeez. multiple cars. The Ferrari team's three thirty P 3s transmission began to give out in the seventh hour, and they were eventually forced to retire from the race. So they gave out you know seven of twelve hours, right? With Ferrari out of the race, there was not another serious contender or threat. Um, now Ken Miles ignored the slowdown signal that went out to both Gurney and Miles as Miles continued to push the Mark II in his own private one-on-one race with Dan Gurney. So this is kind of something that you will see in racing. Uh, you know, once the winners are are basically defined, <clears throat> even off, if they're on the same team, there's a little bit of friendly competition going on uh, between them to see who, who you know who can actually win this thing. So. Um, Due to Ken Miles refusing to slow down, this led to Carol Shelby climbing onto the block and waving a hammer at Ken Miles. Uh, Miles eventually obeyed the signal to slow down to ensure that the cars finish and to spare any damages to the vehicle, because that's what everyone was really concerned about. If you keep pushing it, you're likely to damage the vehicle. Uh, but this lack of team play would come back and haunt Ken Miles. So after the slowdown, Dan Gurney built up a one-lap lead on Miles until mechanical issues started to occur. The car's engine rod threw out, causing the car to roll within 100 yards of the finish line. A minor official told Gurney he could push the car across the finish line, but he was then corrected uh, to an automatic disqualification due to the fact that drivers are not allowed to push their their cars unless they're pushing them off the track for safety reasons um i think we've seen this probably in a few uh you know kind of racing parody movies where you know you kind of either push the car or get out and try and run across the finish line but that is actually not allowed yeah well most recently comes to talladega nights here you know uh, yeah. we're racing across but i wonder you know i wonder if you could like uh, I mean, this is just a high thought probably, but, you know, let's say your car breaks down right before the finish line. You got pulled off the track, but can you push it off to the fin- off to the side, but it crosses the finish line? Like, would they count that? No, because the finish line is technically in, like, in between the, the where the pavement ends and pavement starts, basically. So um, I do not think that that actually applies. But uh, due to these issues with King Gurney's car, this results in Kim Miles getting his second win of the season, right? So, I mean, he's two out of three for the uh, the triple crown, per se. And Ford swept, again, the first three places at the podium. So, this really, uh, you know, it's kind of setting up to a, a historic triple crown run by Mr. Kim Miles. Now, although there was a problem, um, you know, there was a problem with Gurney's car. And it wasn't really you know, what the Ford racing team wanted per se, but you know, albeit Ken miles was surely happy. It's kind of a blessing in disguise and he got his, you know, second win. 
but the Ford engine and foundry team, um, you know, stripped the engine down to examine all of its parts and see if it could be improved. Uh, Ken Miles actually helped out in this process, and uh, he actually developed uh, the, the dynam. I don't even know how, 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 you know, how, how do you say this word? Dynamometer, dynamo motor. I don't know something like that. Hey, you guys. <laughs> Dyna, dynamoma. <laughs> you know what? Dynamo motor, dynamo motor, dynamo motor. There we go. Dynamo motor. Okay, there we go. He developed a dynamo motor <laughs> of Le Mans, which would allow the engines to be tested under race conditions. Uh, this new tape allowed uh, the team in Ford's test block 17D. Sounds like a prison. So what the fuck is that? that? Oh, no. 17D? 17D. Some division. 17th division. Maybe. It sounds like a um, floor. Right. <laughs> this allowed the Ford Ford's test block 17D to attempt uh, to perfect an uh, you know an engine that could run for up to 48 hours at peak performance, which is twice as long as the actual Le Mans race itself. Now, Ford engineer Gus Gussel. Whoa, Gus Gussel. I know. You think this is where Guzzle Gas comes from? It could be Gus Guzzle. You know, oh. uh, he said that the. Uh, dynamo motor tape created uh he said it was he said with the the dyno tape thank god he he just you know shortened it he said can you just say tape, dynamo motor five times fast i don't think no, you can i can't i don't know if you can but thank god mr gus gussell uh decided to shorten it's just dyno he's what he said with the dyno tape created it was like ken miles was in that control room running that car now by the end of may an engine producing 6,500, that's 6,500 RPMs and 485 horsepower was consistently lasting the full 48 hours. They then built 12 of them to specification of the test engine and shipped them to Shelby American Holman mm. and Allen Man Racing for the 24 hours of Le Mans. So here we go, man. We're, we're, we're getting there. You know, we're, we're working on it. You can, see, you can see the lack for better word here the engine turning you know the gears turning here man like they are they are full on like hey we got this figured out dude like we're ready for you at the le mans right now yeah i mean it's uh it's it's, it's building up for sure um oh goodness okay so here we are <laughs> the other major engineering concern on the mark ii was the brakes with the increased weight and speed the mark ii's brakes were taking a beating on each circuit this was due to the fact they were traveling 200 miles per hour into a hairpin turn, braking immediately, and this would cause enough heat to boil the brake fluid itself, warp the rotors, and crack the brake pads. You can see in the movie, it literally is you know, like hot iron or you know steel. I don't know what the actual material is, but it's glowing red dude, just due to the heat out there. It's crazy. Uh, but through continuous innovation and experimentation, alongside with Ford and Kelsey Hayes engineers, they were able to source better material for the pads and rotors. Mm. There's also one rumor that circulated among the racing teams that one of the foundries who was making the new material cannot produce enough of the actual material. So Ford Motor Company acquired them to ensure that the necessary amount of material could be produced and delivered to the team. God, I really want to know how much Ford spent on this project. Like, I want to know, like... In today's money, it's probably so much, dude. Probably a ton. 
They just it's like fun coupons they had. They were just like, fuck it, let's just make this. Well yeah, I, I I mean I think the deuce, I think Henry Ford the second was willing to lose everything to prove this point. You know, we talked about yeah. in the last episode, like he was feeling the pressure of he's not his, his great grandfather or his grandfather and that. Yeah, it's that pride thing, man. It hit him and he's just like, Fuck it, I'm throwing all the money at this that I can. But like, does that make you better than your grandfather? Because you are using grandfather's funds. Like, if it wasn't for him, you wouldn't be able to do this, you know? I, I mean... This is, this is all one big ego, Ray, so that's probably a very valid point, honestly, you know? I guess so, man. It's just... I, the ball's on Ford to go ahead and do this, but, like, you know, it, it just makes you look at those big American companies and you're just like, they're just throwing all this money at They're like, fuck it, whatever. Doesn't matter. I don't care what this costs. Anyway, continue. I'm sorry. Well, one of the most uh, breakthrough innovations was created by Phil Remington of Shelby American, and that's the actor I believe I was talking about last time, the character he plays, uh, and John Holman. Um, but Phil Remington developed a quick change brake system for the calipers, and John Holman built a quick change setup for the rotors. So this meant that even if there were issues on the tracks, the brakes could be changed out in a matter of minutes. This was groundbreaking. This was revolutionary stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see in the movie where they're like, this is not allowed, and they're fighting, like, we can change any part. It says we can change parts. It doesn't matter if it's the, you know, they're all parts of the car. It doesn't matter if we're swapping out the whole system. And this really gave them a big, big advantage is the fact they could switch out the brakes uh, to be able to have better control throughout the course and the 24 hours of that course. So Le Mans race held a big significance for Ford. Obviously, Ford has wanted to prove a point. He's spending all this money just to beat Enzo Ferrari. And it, it had a, a big significance for Ken Miles because if he wins the Le Mans, he would be the first triple crown runner of Daytona, Sebring, and Le Mans. So big, big race for him, right? So that brings us to the actual 1966 24 hours of Le Mans. Oh, baby. So this brings us to June 1966, right before the summer of love, I believe. I think we were probably just initially getting heavy in Vietnam. Uh, but again, I wasn't born in that time, so who the hell knows? Anyway, a virtual army. I didn't even plan that, but that kind of plays out. A virtual army of Ford engineers descended upon the French town of Le Mans, along with an armada. I'm really happy I chose all <laughs> military terms, along with an armada of Ford Motor Company cars. I wish they had shown this. I wish that this movie had covered this, like, them coming to yeah. France. Like, it would have just looked look so cool. Yeah, no, I agree. And, uh, and Mose Nolan said that um, the atmosphere was electrified instantly because we knew the assignment was very important to Mr. Ford. It was just carte blanche for us. The hours of work, the materials required, the places to be, and so on. We knew the mission was important from the very get-go. Now, eight Ford factory cars were entered, three from Shelby and Holman and Moody, and two more supplied from England by Allen Mann Racing. Uh, The main competition would last, or sorry, would come from 11 Ferraris. So, uh... 11 so quite a few uh numbers as far as the competitor goes which included three 330 p3s and four 385 p2s among those 11 and as the day of the race drew closer the ford's le mans committee made their way down to show support for the team henry ford ii was actually named honorary chairman of the race and served as a starter with his wife and son mm. and what does that mean like he's he waved the flag Yes, I believe so. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and at 4 p.m. on June 18th, Henry Ford waved the starter flag, and the drivers raced across the track to start their cars and race. So this is something that doesn't occur anymore, but in the earlier years of Le Mans, once they waved the flag, the drivers were on one side and then ran over to their cars yeah. to start them and take off. So, you know, now they're all, you know, in their cars, they're, they're safe. In their car and then, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we can't have any deaths uh, happening, okay? You know, like, yeah, yeah. there's that, there's too much of a PR stunt there. Exactly. Now, Ken Miles again had the second fastest qualifying lap after Gurney. Um, he had immediate issues due to his car door hitting his helmet and Ooh. having to go quickly pit for repairs. This is kind of taken on in the movie where he can't close the door. Slightly different circumstances, but you know they portrayed it to some point, I believe. Uh, now, Ford and Ferrari traded the lead throughout much of the, the early part of the race, honestly. And the crowd anxiously watched on, knowing that Ford had the faster car, but could it last the entire length of the endurance race? It's not about who is the fastest car. It's about who is the fastest car that will last the longest. Now, after midnight, the tables began to turn as the Ferraris began to drop out one by one with mechanical issues. While Ford did have some withdrawals, the bulk of their teams continued to race on and at one point held the first, second, third, fifth, and eighth positions in the race. The orders went out for the teams to slow the pace to make sure that the cars could actually finish the race, which actually... <laughs> Which goes to say exactly how much is being asked of these vehicles. I mean, they are really putting them to the test and straining them to the maximum capabilities. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's it's. I mean, this is really engineering and it's fine. This is man's desire uh, to go fast. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Seven thousand RPM, baby. That's where you. That's where you feel it. Yep. And uh, you know, in the words of Dom Toretto, "I live my life a quarter mile at a time." <laughs> Anyway. I'm pretty sure you have that tattooed on your neck, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and don't let that distract you from the fact that Hector is going to be running three Honda Civics with spoon engines. On top of that, he just walked into Harry's and ordered three MoTeC exhausts, <laughs> stage two turbos, and I can't remember the rest of the line. Uh, and while he waited, he ordered a tuna sandwich. Yeah. Anyway, so the drivers slowed the pace of three three minutes 30 seconds per lap to three minutes 50 seconds per lap so slowing down by 20 seconds per lap dan gurney was in the lead most of the night with ken miles and bruce mclaren trading second and third place basically off who was pitting and who was not so all these these cars were in in, in the four drivers were all fairly close together uh but unfortunately again gurney's car went out with engine problems around 10 a.m and ford still held the first three places between shelby american and the holman and moody teams uh, and then we get to the controversial end of the 1966 24 hours of Le Mans. So with two hours remaining in the race, Ford exec Leo Beebe and Carol Shelby met to discuss the end of the race. Ford had the first three places and winning was basically guaranteed at this point. Ken Miles uh, and Bruce McLaren were having themselves a good old-fashioned, friendly, one-on-one personal race at this point. But Leo Beebe thought that if this continued, then another mechanical malfunction may occur if they keep pushing these cars to their limit. Like the one that happened to Dan Gurney earlier on and also at Sebring. Um, you know, although to be fair, um, you know, kind of everyone had minor issues in this race, but everyone was kind of working through with the, uh, you know, with the pit stops and everything. Um, so the teams discussed having the cars cross the finish line together in a tie situation. This really came from Leo Beebe and Henry Ford. They thought it'd be a great marketing 
kind of ploy to have a pitcher with all three UT40s crossing the finish line at the same time. And it was. It was a great idea. I mean, I mean it is it is an epic and historical pitcher for sure. So they actually, you know, the teams discussed this, uh, you know, having the cards cross the finish line together in a, in a tie situation. And they even, you know, inquired and asked the ACO, which was the Le Mans Racing Organiza- Organizing Committee, and asked if this was permitted. And the ACO agreed that this, this was possible. So, you know, they informed their drivers, Ken Miles, Bruce McLaren, like at their next pit stops, basically what was going to happen. So they didn't really know until they pitted. But, hey, you guys are all going to finish and cross, you know, in a tie, which would basically still technically, you know, guarantee Ken Miles his, his, his triple crown. Um you know, but to be fair, these guys are true competitors at their core. So obviously neither of these drivers were what you would say excited about the decision, but both agreed, uh, you know, and Ken Miles even stated, you know, later on, I work for Ford Ford, I work for Ford Motor Company. If they want me to win the race, why well, I'll do it. If they ask me to jump in a lake, well, I guess I'll have to do that as well. Uh, so, I mean, he kind of, you know, understood that it, it was you know, a little bit bigger of a picture than just him winning the race. Although down to his core, you know, I think if, if any of us would, you kind of want to win that and set history with the you know, triple crown of course i mean like i i, I can't imagine i can't imagine like that feeling if you got to win it i mean the way they showed him at the end of that film walking off so gracefully uh i really wonder if uh ken miles was that graceful about it well he was also like he was actually so that's kind of funny because that's what i i learned in, in a lot of the research is um, the movie portrays him as like this kind of rogue, like, you know, kind of hard to deal with it sometimes. But um, how Ken Miles was remembered was just the utmost professional, like a very nice, very professional guy. Not nearly as cocky as the movie kind of, uh, you know, perceives him. And I think that, you know, is kind of um, reiterated to be true by some of these, you know, quotes and some of the stories that, uh, you know, kind of come around this race. But. Uh, Miles had, you know, just recently taken the lead during McLaren's pit stop. Again, they were kind of going back and forth who was pitting, who was who was racing. Um, you know, and, and uh, he started to slow down to allow uh, – well, both Miles and McLaren started to slow down to allow the third-place driver to catch up, and that car was driven by Dick Hutcherson of Holman & Moody. By this time that they were slowing down for allowing Hutcherson to catch up, uh, word came down from the ACO that a tie was actually not allowed. Uh, and since the McLaren team had started eight meters further than Miles and Hutcherson, that he was named winner of the race. So they all crossed basically together, expecting to be dead heat, and McLaren technically uh, wins the race. Now, this is a very, very heavily debated subject, as there was nothing written in the rules and regulations from that year to specify any sort of rule you know, in the event of a tie. So this is like kind of unprecedented territory. They just made this up on the go or, or what happened. But obviously, as you can imagine, uh, you know, Ken Miles wasn't thrilled. But again, I, I think he is he's the ultimate professional. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you kind of just you do your job and, you know, what happens, what happens. Right. Yeah, it's a bit of a shame. Like you saying that, too, and hearing that about Ken Miles. Not a shame. It's more of a shame at like the way they portrayed him in the film is like to be this like hard knock like guy who like, you know, only believes in what he believes in but like if he's such a team player like why didn't they show him as that because they needed the i don't know 
the raunchy bad guy, the raunchy bad boy of the yeah, film. I mean, like you're making a movie, dude. It's it's great. You got Carol Shelby and you know Ken Miles, two great personalities, two historical racing figures. I, I mean, you know, I get it. It's Hollywood. They always change some shit. Sure. I mean, yeah, absolutely. It's just you know, it makes you it makes you distrust everything that you kind of learn about when you watch Hollywood movies. And like, I think that's kind of like the point of this podcast is to expose like the differences between them. And, you know, it makes you want to go read more and understand differently how these people really live their lives versus the Hollywood. Cause sometimes the truth is just way better than the movies, even though if it makes you feel that way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, so the the decision to notify the drivers of the ACO ruling fell upon Leo Beebe and Carol Shelby. Um, the two discussed and considered many factors, um, such as the fact that you know Ken Miles had done the bulk of the race prep work on the Mark II to prepare for the race uh, since his first drive in February of really 1965. While on the other hand, Bruce McLaren had been with the program since it started in 1963 and had always been, you know, what would you call, what you would call a team player and always drive the assigned speed. Um, both the drivers felt that they could win a race, um, you know, because they neither, n- neither of them really had a, a massive lead. It was, you know, no more than a lap or two. And again, it was, a, you know, who was pitting, who wasn't, who was driving, you know, very, very close race. But Leo Beebe ultimately made the call to not even inform the drivers, right? And kind of contrary to what the movie shows, he was like, you know what, whatever. Let's let this friendly friendly race uh, to the finish occur. And, um, you know, which would ultimately make, you know, McLaren the winner, uh, you know, in hindsight. But uh, even so, Leo Beebe was, you know, pretty happy with, with that because he later noted that two have can win would have been more expedient and more popular. But the extent to which McLaren and um, Amon, the, the, the team, uh, had played exactly according to our rules, mitigated against Miles. Uh, the result was not necessarily even popular with me. So, um, you know, it's kind of like that where I guess you're, you're open to letting it play out. But, you know, the fact that McLaren won by technicality, but also that McLaren was a team player, did everything according to, you know, management. Um, and then, of course, Ken Miles having... You know, his previous episode that, again, we said would come back to haunt him. Um, you know, I kind of think it, it sides more with, with McLaren on that one. But during the final lap, the three Ford cards rode in tandem uh, with Miles and McLaren crossing the finish line in a dead tie, dead heat with Hutcherson very close, about a car length behind them in third place. Ken Miles and fellow driver Denny Hulm, uh, who was hanging out the passenger side door. <laughs> love that. <laughs> no surprise. Uh, but they were so, sorry, let me go back a little bit. Ken sure. Miles and Denny Hume um, were both surprised when they were waved off to allow McLaren and Amon to the victory podium. Uh, Bur- both were slightly upset when they learned of the ACO rule interpretation. Uh, but again, obviously, Ken Miles was the most sexy, the most to lose. He wanted to win that triple crown. Would have been the first driver to win Daytona, Sebring, and Le Mans in the same year. But in an interview shortly after, Miles noted again, you know, he worked for Ford Motor Company and would accept whatever outcome occurred. So this basically concludes the the racing portion. I mean, three years after being rejected by Ferrari, Ford Motor Company had developed one of the best race endurance cars in the world. 
with the Le Mans victory, Ford Motor Company won the manufacturer championship because of their combined scores. Uh, the 289 GT40 also won the Sports 50 title for Ford as well. This concluded a grueling, daunting, energy-filled three years of some of America's greatest engineering feats to build a car from scratch, basically, and take down uh, take down the goat who was Enzo Ferrari, and uh, and it happened. You know. Um, this is an awesome piece of American history. It really is. You look at these photos. Um, it, 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 I mean, if you look at that photo and, and you understand the significance of it, kind of brings chills to you, you know, to take down and become number one. Yeah, it's a, it's a good old-fashioned uh, patriot uh, patriotism story from, you know, the 60s. I mean, like the 40s, the 50s, the 60s are just such a time of patriotism uh and it that that succession of like i will do whatever it takes to be the best and like you feel it in that movie i mean you feel it when ford says like do you like when he's looking at carol shelby saying look at that plant over there like that plant's gone to war more with europe uh once and it'll do it again and it'll win you know like it's like that 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 feeling that it kind of gets uh gets you excited for it gets you a little little chub yeah, this is the height of, you know, like that American pride and drive, right? Yeah, man, it's it, I love it. Like it's it, it's it's what makes you proud to be an American. Uh, exactly, dude. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and fast forward, you know, sixty years, you know, everyone fucking hates America because <laughs> the climate we live in now is nobody even. It sucks because honestly, like, there isn't just that sense of overall American pride from you know, every citizen that, that I felt like, I mean, these are, these are, these are people that, that many of them fought in the war in world war two. I mean, this is, these are not yeah. Ken miles and Carol Shelby alone, man. I mean, these are not pushovers. Right. So, um, now let's get into, there's a bit of tragedy of this story. Um, so after the Le Mans race, uh, the Ford J car was supposed to be the successor to the GT 40, Mark II. Despite reliability problems, it showed potential in the springtime Le Mans trials. Uh, after the death of Walt uh, Hansgen uh, in a J car during testing in Le Mans in April, the decision was made to shelve the J car and focus on the Mark II. So little development was done with the J car that season due to this decision. They basically went with the GT40 Mark II not the new kind of prototype J car. They wanted the GT 40 Mark II in the Le Mans race. Right. So, uh, no development was done. No improvements were done. Now in August, 1966, this is not, you know, long after, uh, they won the Le Mans, uh, Shelby resumed testing and development, uh, work with Ken miles still serving as the driver. And, and the J car had a bread van shaped rear section that experimented with cam back aerodynamic theories, <laughs> Uh, cam back is basically a sloping back um, met with a, a little vertical fin, almost like a, a built-in kind of, almost like oh, like a built-in spoiler. Not the, the effect of like a full-on, you know, bougie-ass spoiler, but to help to help keep, you know, the lift down, right? To, to, to put some, uh, some pressure on the back end. Um, and this was revolutionary, but it also had an untested honeycomb, honeycomb panel design that was supposed to not only lighten, but stiffen the car. However, there were no proven tests um, with this 
honeycomb design on high-speed sports cars. So after a whole day of testing at Riverside International Speedway in the extremely hot Southern California desert, I'm sure you can attest to that, DJ. Yeah, it's 115 right now, baby. Um, miles approached the end of the tracks one mile downhill back straight at top speeds of 200 plus miles per hour when the car suddenly looped, flipped, crashed, and caught fire. The car broke into multiple pieces, ejecting Ken Miles and killing him instantly. The car suffered the same sort of crash it was designed to prevent with the honeycomb. Oh, it's like the Titanic, baby. Unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. It was like, and you know, I like honestly wasn't really aware too much of this story. Like, I knew it happened, but I didn't know like the, the intricacies and like. Yeah, I didn't either. They just they kind of so nonchalantly at the end. Like, you're just not expect. Like, you're expecting the happy ending, and then like the tragedy. You know. Well, and, and like they show his son there, and you know, and, and I yeah. learned that his son really was there. Like his his son's. His son had an interview in 2019, like when this movie came out, still talking about like how he can remember almost every detail that day. Like I can't imagine having to yeah. be there. Well, you, for know that. What, you know what the, the film does a great job of is really showing that you know he's um, a family man, Ken his Miles. Son, well, yeah, but his son was was his biggest fan. Yeah. You know? And uh, it, yeah, like I I even feel my emotions peaking up right now. My. <laughs> Being a father, man, that is, uh, I couldn't imagine that. Uh, it's just true, uh, true tragedy, honestly. And, you know, as a result of the crash, the aerodynamics of the J car were modified, you know, to correct the rear end lift. And um, that was generated at racing speed. So, you know, even in his death, uh, Ken Miles was still, you could say, involved in part of the reason that this car was modified and fixed. You know, um, and Ford officials under pressure after the second death in the program in only five months ordered that a NASCAR style rollover cage be installed in all future versions of the cars. Um, so now, you know, we're looking at a significantly revised J car. Ken Miles died um, testing and building. They renamed it the GT40 Mark IV, and it did win the only two races that it was entered in, which was the 12 hours of Sebring in the 1970s. They're sorry, 67, 24 hours of Le Mans. So that was, you know, Ken Miles' blood was on that car, but it, it, it certainly won the 24 hours of Le Mans the following year. So I guess kind of posthumously, he did get his, uh, his Le Mans win, I guess we can say, to be positive about the situation. So the steel roll cage in the Mark IV that was mandated after the death of Ken Miles also, here's an interesting fact, most likely saved Mario Andretti's life. Now, if you don't know who Mario Andretti is, he's the most probably well-known and most renowned racer of all time. He is the status quo. Um, and he wrecked in one of these, and the, 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 the steel roll cage saved his life. He crashed violently in the 1967 24 Hours of Le Mans. Um, so that's a fun little fact, but you know, back to Ken. So Ken Miles was buried in the Abbey of Psalms Mausoleum uh of the hollywood forever Cemetery. oh really yeah. Yeah, i go go visit i go there all the time actually like they're they do a uh a lot of concerts they do a lot of i saw last podcast on the left perform there that's a really cool venue so i have to look for him next time definitely go look for him and uh you know take a picture so i'm sure that and uh miles was posthumously inducted into the motorsports hall of fame of america in 2001 so it took long enough huh 
took long enough. Exactly. So I, I just had a couple of fun facts here I wanted to discuss. So uh, fun fact, Miles raced motorcycles before he served in the British Territorial Army of World War II. Miles spent the next seven years working in machinery and was promoted to the rank of Staff Sergeant in 1942. And he was stationed in a tank unit that took part in the Normandy landing of 1944. So mm. this man has seen some shit and he's a badass. I think they talk about in the movie that he you know, landed a, a tank on the beaches of Normandy. Um, you know, uh, it was also rumored um, during the actual Le Mans race, it was rumored that Miles was upset about the team orders to all finish together and that he lifted off at the end to allow McLaren to finish a length of head, basically saying, I'm not taking part of this. Basically saying, I'm not going to tie, and I'd rather let Bruce McLaren win than go on with this kind of, you know, cronyism uh, pony show for a, for a photo op. So um, that that's basically the conclusion of the story. Um I encourage everyone to go watch a movie if you haven't already. It, it really is an awesome, uh, you know, movie that will make you uh, hopefully inspire a little pride in you, you know, about being an American and, and wanting to, to be the best and take on the best and, and win, uh, you know, the highest level. Yeah, and it's it like we were just saying earlier, like it's it's a you feel that good old fashioned American spirit coming out of of you know wanting to be the best and putting in the sweat. Uh, to do it and be the best, you know, it's a fucking great story. I, I really enjoyed researching this movie. Uh, I, I really enjoyed watching it uh, just as much. Uh, I think it was flown under the radar. 2019 had some great films out there. Uh, and, you know, this movie obviously had a lot of Oscar nominations, but, you know, with the likes of Parasite uh, and the likes of Joker and the likes of all these other movies that came out, this kind of just kind of got pushed down to the bottom uh a little bit more than it than it maybe would have if it was a different year but it, it overall great film definitely see it uh matt damon's at his best and so is honestly christian bale yeah well i mean like when is christian bale not at his best i can't name a <sighs> terminator salvation i'll go ahead and say that one <laughs> um yeah dude it, it flew under the radar but hey if your movie gets you know Oscar nominated, then you've done a, a hell of a job, an absolute hell of a job. Absolutely, and James Mangold is just like he's masterful. Like any movie of his, he touches his it usually turns to gold. So I implore you to watch any on his films as well. Go watch this, guys, if you haven't. It is such a good movie. I, I uh, I'm trying to get my dad to watch it. Honestly, I think he will absolutely love it. He's he's big into. Uh, this scene, I think, as I mentioned last episode, he was on. He was trying to in talks about trading his his antique Porsche for uh, yeah. a Cobra. So, uh, just a, a really thorough, thorough, good movie. It's a feel good movie up until you know the last scene. <laughs> up till two o four, you know, it's just two hours in. You're just like, oh fuck. But you know what? It needs to be told, uh, and it's and it's told as well as it can be to be historically accurate. Uh, you know, so that I think I want to add to the podcast later on, Jay, as we get this is like historical accuracy ratings out of 10. I think that'd be interesting. Uh, you know, if I had to say this off the top of my head, I would say this is like a seven out of 10 in terms, terms of uh, historical accuracy, which is pretty damn good. Yeah, I like to think it's pretty close as well. Yeah, but I love the movie. I actually give it a nine out of 10 in terms of like how great it is. 
that's fair. That is very fair. I, I'm I'm right there with you. I, I'd probably say about eight point five somewhere around there. Yeah, so you know, pretty uh pretty on par with you. Uh, but again, then it, it takes a lot to get to, to to the ten level, right? For I think for both of us, so very rare we'll probably ever say a ten. But um, amazing movie, amazing movie, and um, you know, tune in next week as we cover the real story behind killer clowns from outer space. <laughs> I still am mind boggled at that, that. The fact that you said that this was a real story. I looked it up and I couldn't believe it. 88. Like, can you believe that clowns came down and fucking built a fucking giant circus tent in uh, Los Angeles and killed a bunch of people? It's crazy. It's crazy, dude. But we'll cover that. It's a little lesser known history. You know, it's kind of. Yeah. Show due to Russians, but uh, we'll get there. Well, I'm pretty sure that the Russians were actually behind it. But, you know, again, we'll dive into it next time. <laughs> Anyway, uh thank you for everyone uh for listening this has been based on real events and uh we do hope you enjoyed this episode we will be back next week uh with who knows you know we're still trying to figure it out but uh we probably well, we, we narrowed it down i think uh, we, we're doing uh psycho we're going to concentrate on ed gein oh i forgot yes oh, yes yeah. we're getting back into the horror genre i, oh, I missed it you're searching for podcasts for racing stories and you come across our our bloody artwork a thumbnail of these podcasts you're probably a little concerned so yes you are going to look i promise we're gonna update all this stuff here soon we're gonna update everything we're gonna get this looking like a real nice professional podcast but we will be covering one of the biggest oh psychologically disordered psychopaths in the history of the world Jay, I can't wait to get learnt on this. I and you're gonna be like, "Fuck you, EJ," but I don't know much about Edgeen at all. Edgeen was a legend, bro. Well, anyway, we'll go. We're gonna go balls deep into this one. We'll see. I, I don't. I, I hope we, we should be able to bang this one out in one episode. Just a gory, gory episode for everyone that's wanting to be sick with us. Yum. Anyway, as always, I am Jay Kington, alongside EJ Golit. Edward Jordan. You call me Edward Jordan, you pieces of shit. Edward Jordan. <laughs> See you next time, friends. Adios. Thank you.